Well, as we uh, continue uh, this morning in our series on the unsearchable riches of Christ, I'd like you to turn back with me to Ephesians and chapter 2. Ephesians uh, chapter 2 and particularly verses 13 and 14. Now, a number of years ago, I was listening uh, to a, a radio program. And in the program, uh, they were interviewing various refugees that had reached the border of Hungary. At that particular time, Hungary had set up very large barriers uh, to try and prevent the, the huge flocks of migrants who were trying to enter the country at that time. And the large crowds of refugees included men, they included women and families from all over the world, but particularly from the Middle East and from parts of West Africa. And they were interviewing a man who had travelled from West Africa, and he had travelled by foot for many months uh, to reach Western Europe. The journey had been incredibly long. It had been uh, very dangerous. And the interviewer asked him why. Why had he exerted so much energy, so much effort to, to get to the border of Hungary? What was, his, you know, what was his reason for leaving his home nation, the place where he'd been brought up? leave behind his family? What, what, had, what was this, this reason for bringing this man here? What had driven him to pursue something that he would knew would potentially cost him his life? And I remember this interview very well because the man just gave one answer, one word answer to the person interviewing him. He simply said, peace. All I want is peace. And that interview struck me because... That man summed up really what lots of people are looking for in life. Man desires peace. Man wants harmony. And this is, we see in this world that's full of unrest, a world that's full of strife, a world where there is so much conflict, what people so often want and desire is simply peace. There's part of me that wanted to reach out to that man, obviously he was on the radio, I couldn't do it, we wanted to reach out to him and say to him, you're never going to find peace at the border of Hungary. You're not going to find peace by entering a particular country, you can only find peace, can't you, through the Lord Jesus Christ. And this passage in front of us this morning, Paul says to the Christians there in, in verse 14, Christ Jesus, he is our peace, he says, for he is our peace who have made both one and have broken down the middle wall of petition between us. And this morning I want to think about this subject this morning, the peace of Christ. The peace of Christ. Over these past few weeks we've continued to consider, haven't we, some of these different doctrines concerning the Lord Jesus. And we reached that point last week where we were considering the imputation of Christ. That when we come to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, that there is this glorious, we said, this sweet exchange you remember how we thought about how our sin is imputed to the Lord Jesus Christ and he has made sin for us. And in return, the perfect righteousness of Christ is imputed to us, is laid to our account. And so as believers in Christ, we now are clothed in Christ's righteousness. And the Bible tells us that when, when that happens, when that sweet exchange happens, we are justified before God's. And of course, one of the great fruits and benefits that flows from this is that the believer is now at peace. The believer now 
has peace. And here in this passage, Paul spells it out so very clearly. Christ, he says, as I said in verse 14, is our peace. He is peace itself. The Bible tells us he is the prince of peace, the author of peace. He is king of Salem, which is king of peace. Remember how even when the Saviour came into the world, the angels announced his birth and they praised God, saying, glory to God in the highest. Peace, goodwill toward men. Peace on earth, when even when the Saviour came. We're told that when he came, he preached peace in verse 17. Paul in Romans 10 calls this, this word that he preached the gospel of peace. And peace, of course, finds its foundation in the cross. This is why Christ can be our peace. Notice what verse 16 says in our chapter here this morning. It says that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross. You see, peace and reconciliation comes through the cross. That's why Isaiah wrote, didn't he, the chastisement of our peace was upon him. It's through the sufferings, it's through the substitution and the imputation of Christ that as believers we now enjoy this peace. Well, if the foundation of this peace is Christ's cross, then we can say the fountain of this peace is Christ's blood. Remember the words of Paul writing in Colossians chapter 1. Those words... Colossians chapter 1 and and verse 20, it says, And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself. It's through the shed blood of Christ that believers enjoy this, this sweet peace. And it's a fixed peace. It's a permanent peace. We've been singing of this. It's an everlasting peace. It's a peace that can never be taken away. Our justification does not waver and falter. An altar. It's not blown about like a piece of tumbleweed in the wind. Christ is our peace for time and he's our peace for all eternity. Remember how he blessed the disciples and he said to them, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. So the Lord Jesus Christ is our peace. But the question I want to answer this morning is, in what way is Christ our peace? Where does this peace apply? How does, as it were, how does the believer now have this peace? And I think that we can see this peace of Christ applied in five different directions. And uh, I want to think this morning with you about these five different directions in which the believer now has peace and has peace with God. And the first thing that we notice then this morning about the peace of Christ And the first direction we could say is that as believers we have peace with God. We have peace with God. There is peace between the believing sinner and a holy and almighty God. Do you remember the words that we read even last week in Romans chapter 5 and verse 1? Therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what we were thinking about with the boys and girls a moment ago. Sin has brought enmity. It has brought strife and warfare. The the relationship that should exist between the creature and his creator has has been destroyed. And this enmity was found on both sides. Firstly, you think God is opposed to the sinner. Romans 5 verse 10, sinners are described, as we were thinking a moment ago, as enemies of God's. And sin brings separation from, 
between the sinner and God, God's countenance of favour and, and love, he, he hides from the sinner. Remember those words of Isaiah 59. Isaiah 59, the Lord tells us how he looks upon, his, looks upon those in their sin. Isaiah 59 and, and verse 2, he says, But your iniquities have separated between you and your gods, and your sins have hid his face from you, that he will not hear. So God, he, he hides his face against the sinner. Psalm 5 that we, we read a, a few weeks ago reminds us that God hates all workers of iniquity, that he has no pleasure in wickedness, that he abhors the, the bloody and deceitful man, and his wrath is ready to destroy and conversely, we see that the sinner is also opposed to God, has no desire for him, does not delight in him. The sinner hates God. Sinners destroyed any relationship. Right back there in the Garden of Eden, you remember how uh, there was harmony prevailed, how there was peace between Adam and God. And, and Adam enjoyed sweet communion with God. And they walked together in unity. There was a relationship, but then sin destroyed it. Adam runs from the very presence of God. He hides from God. You remember how the apostle writing in Romans 3 gives this detailed description of what man now is like in his sin and how he's at enmity. In Romans chapter 3 and verse 15 and following, it tells us that their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And in verse 17 he says, And the way of peace have they not known. We're against God. Ever since sin entered the world, sinners are in a constant and active revolt against a holy God. They struggle with him and they fight against him, resist his rule. But the cross of Christ breaks down that enmity. The sinner, when he comes by faith, he's justified and he finds this reconciliation. He no longer is cut off from God, no longer estranged from him, but he's brought nigh. He's brought close. Look at what it says in, in our chapter this morning, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. You've been brought near. Taking it in its broadest sense there, it speaks of the sinner being far off, far away from God. But he's now brought nigh. And so the sinner now has peace with God. And it's worth saying that this, friends, is the most important peace that anyone can ever have. To have peace with God is vital. To have peace with God is necessary. It's what every person desperately needs. A life of warring with God will, will end in disaster. In Romans, we're told that, that opposition against God is, is heaping wrath up against the day of wrath. Fighting with God will, will lead to eternal destruction and ruin. But, you see, in Christ and through his blood, the believer now has peace. Peace with God. That enmity is taken away. The blood of Christ appeases the Father. And a new heart's placed within us. So that we now seek God and we rely upon God and we're now reconciled to God. Remember the words of Colossians chapter 1 and verses 19 following it says here for it pleased the father that in him should all fullness dwell and having made peace through the blood of his cross by him 
to reconcile all things unto himself. By him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. You have reconciliation with God. There's friendship with God. Between the the believing soul and, and a holy God, there's fellowship. There's an intimacy, there's a a dependency, there's a oneness of hearts. You see, now the believer leans upon God and looks to God and and prays to God. You see this intimacy, I think, displayed in the words of Hosea chapter 2. Hosea chapter 2 and verse 23, the Lord says this, I will say to them which were not my people, thou art my people. And they shall say, thou art my God. You see, there's a relationship. You were once not my people, but now I say, you are my people. And they respond and say, yes, you're my gods. There's peace. It's the language of reconciliation. It's the language of friendship. It's the language of love. And this is remarkable. It's now in Christ that we have close communion with God's. Believers, this morning we should seek to cultivate this close communion. We should seek to to encourage this communion that we have with God. Let me ask you this morning, do you lean upon God? Do you pray to him? Do you take time to enjoy his his presence? Do you walk with him? Remember, this is what Enoch did in Genesis. We read that he walked with God. There's that continual walking side by side in sweet fellowship and unity and peace with God. Do you do this? Abraham was the same. Moses talked face to face with God. See, there was peace. And friends, when we do, you see, God speaks to us and he strengthens us and he encourages our souls and he gladdens our hearts as we walk day by day with him. So here then is the, is the first direction of, of this peace. We have peace with God. But there's a second direction, I think, that we can think of this morning. And that's that we have peace with ourselves. We have peace with ourselves. And what I mean by this is that we have a peace of conscience. We have a, an, inner, an inner peace, an inward peace. Every one of us here in the room this morning has an internal monitor, don't we, called the conscience. That inward alarm clock that rings when we, when we do something wrong. And God and his law have been imprinted on every human soul. The law of God is, is written upon our hearts and so while God is, is invisible, he has this way of making himself known in every, in every heart. So you may have a man, for example, he may kill somebody, he may murder somebody. And no one may see it, may, no one may know about it, no one may hear the cries and the groans of that person. There's no police officer to arrest him. There's nobody there to, to seize him. You know, they're not dragged before the, the court of law, but they have this conscience that pursues them. This internal police officer comes along and and may arrest them in their hearts. And they know immediately that they're guilty. Solomon says in Proverbs 28 that the wicked flee when no man pursueth. And the wicked flee because their conscience pursues them. It haunts them. It chases them. They're pursued even when no one is pursuing them. It's a... We have this in our lives as a constant pursuit of the conscience. And it means that the sinner never has rest, never has peace, never has an internal peace within. 
I think you see this so clearly, don't you, when somebody that we read on the news has committed an awful crime. Very often, you see, the moment the criminal does it, they may be the most calculating person, they may be very calm, normally under great pressure, but the moment guilt hits them, they begin to do all sorts of irrational things. Because guilt has begun to grip their hearts. They return to the scene of the crime. They try to cover up something. They, they, they constantly try to make amends for what they've done, perhaps, because conscience is pursuing them. Guilt, it haunts us, doesn't it? And it hunts us all through our lives. It can even do it in the middle of the night. I remember talking to a lady in one of the care homes in Thursk uh, when we used to do services there, and she talked... Uh, she was an elderly lady in her 90s, and she said to me one day, I I'm not sleeping very well. And I was expecting that this lady was going to tell me, you know, I've got a bad back, and, and my joints ache, and so on, and, and this is why I can't sleep at night. But she said, no, the reason why I can't sleep at night is because of things that I did when I was a teenager. There she was in her 90s, and yet she could recall as if it was yesterday, sins in her past from years ago, and they haunted her. And so she couldn't sleep at night because of the guilt. But you know, friends, when we know Christ, who is our peace, we have a peace of conscience. Our conscience is quelled, there's a quietness within. We know that our sins have been forgiven. We know they've been dealt with by Christ. They've been washed in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that, we have no, that even though the devil may come with an accusing finger, we have an advocate with the Father. And he's the one who's able to present us faultless before his presence of his glory with exceeding joy. He's able to present us as if there was no sin. You remember the words of the hymn writer, peace, perfect peace, in this dark world of sin? There's a question mark there. Can you find peace within, in this world? Well, the answer is the blood of Jesus whispers, peace within. It's true, isn't it, friends? This is the peace which the world cannot give. It's a peace that passeth all understanding. Paul tells us that this peace keeps our hearts and our minds. This is the peace which in Isaiah is described as being like a river that we've, we've been singing about. A river which is ever flowing, a river which is deep, it's ever fresh, it's ever pleasant. What a blessing, friends, it is to have an inner peace. Now we need to say at this point that our experience of this inner peace can fluctuate. We can at times be disturbed by outward afflictions or the devil may come and he may assault us as believers and sometimes of course the Lord temporarily hides his face from us perhaps because of our sin and so the believer can lose the sense of this peace. But those words that we read at the beginning of our service give us the answer to such times when we lose this peace. Isaiah 26 and verse 3. It says, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace. How? How are we to have this perfect peace? Isaiah 26 verse 3. It says, Whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth. In me. And so here, friends, is the answer to maintaining that inward, that inner peace with God. When we have times of unrest and anxiety, we must stay our minds, we must fix our hearts upon Jehovah. We have to anchor, anchor as it were, our hearts in Jesus Christ. Jehovah Shalom, the one who gives us this perfect peace. 
That's why the psalmist could say in Psalm 5, I will both lay me down in peace and sleep. For thou, Lord, only makest me dwell in safety. You see, when all, all around us is turbulent and everything around us is, is talking of strife and there seems to be so much warfare and there may be things that afflict us, we can lie down in peace because we have this inward peace, a peace of conscience. But I think there's also a third aspect, a third direction that we can think about this peace of Christ this morning. And this third aspect is a peace with even the angelic hosts. A peace even with the angels. I think this is something that we don't really think about enough. Uh, we don't really perhaps think too much about or the forces and the angels and, and, and that spiritual world that is unseen to us. That there are cherubim and seraphim, and and when you know when man fell in the Garden of Eden, even all the angelic host was against Adam. There was enmity not only between the sinner and God, but there was enmity between sinner and, and all his angels. Think back in, in Genesis chapter three when Adam sinned, he was cast out of the garden, and paradise was barred from him, wasn't it? And you remember what was placed. Guarding the entrance to the Garden of Eden. Cherubim. And there was the flaming sword as well, wasn't there? You see, even the angelic hosts were against the sinner. But now, as with Christ as our peace, we're told that the angels are ministering spirits, we're told in Hebrews 1. They're sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation. They assist us. They assist the believers. They help the church. There is peace now between the believer and this innumerable company of angels. Now, I don't know about you, but I find this, when you begin to think about this, is a wonderfully comforting thought. You know, at times we can feel as Christians outnumbered. As we look at this hostile world and we see that there's only a small gathering in the church, we can, we can feel so, so small, so weak. The church seems to be receding and waning and it seems so small and insignificant. And yet the reality is that we have helping us and ministering for us legions of angels. They're all doing the bidding of almighty gods. You remember that passage in 2 Kings chapter 6 when Elisha was faced with that great Syrian army. And his servant was afraid. He sees the hosts of the Syrian army surrounding the camp. And, and, he, and he's worried and, he, and he's afraid. But Elisha prays, doesn't he, that the Lord would be gracious to him and open his eyes. And in 2 Kings 6, it tells us that the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And what did he see? And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. You see, Elisha knew, you see, look, this is, this is great army, but I've got a greater one behind me. And as a church, we need to remember this. We may feel small, but we've got all of the angelic host behind us. The angels of God sent forth to minister for God's people. And when we have peace, when Christ is our peace, we have peace even with the angels of heaven. There's a fourth direction that I think we can think about this peace of Christ and that is that we have a peace with all believers. A peace with all believers. And this is the primary meaning of this uh, passage that we read here in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul is stressing in this passage that there's now no distinction between Jew and Gentile. 
The temple, you remember, in Jerusalem had a dividing wall down the middle. There was a a wall that split off the Jews from the Gentiles. On one side were the Jews and they had full access to all that was in the temple. But the Gentile proselytes, they had to be outside. They were on the other side of the wall. And they wouldn't mix. Jews wouldn't mix with Gentiles. They didn't want to be defiled. It was unclean. The Jews had all their ceremonial laws, which the Gentiles never had. But Paul, he strongly makes this point here, that Christ has broken down this middle wall of petition. He says the ceremonial law, it's been abolished. And so now both sides are reconciled to God through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says that there's no difference now between the Jew and the Gentile in Christ. Both, he says, now have free access by one Spirit. There's no restraint to the throne of God. Jew and Gentile can both come. Verse 15, he makes it clear he's abolished in the flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace. And Paul is saying here, look, there is only one church. There is only one society of God, as it were. It's Jew and Gentile. Paul actually uses, uh, he uses three different metaphors in, in verses 19 and 20 and 21 there to illustrate this unity that we now have between Jew and Gentile. He speaks there about uh, the church being like a city. Everyone is a free member. There's no more strangers and foreigners but fellow citizens with the saints. It's a, it's a great city, but it's also a household. The household of God, he mentions there at verse 19. Everyone's part of this household. It's a house where everyone is a member of the family. No one's excluded. All are adopted into the family of God. All are made sons of God. And then he adds a third picture, the picture of a building in verses 20 and 21. Christ is the the chief cornerstone. The foundation, the apostles and prophets and believers are being added to this growing temple day by day like living stones, living bricks. And so the Apostle stresses that uh, to the Ephesians here, look, both Jew and Gentiles are now reconciled. Paul is as much of the church as the Ephesians were of the church. Jew and Gentile reconciled in Christ. So there's no division. I think this is important today because there are still some who see a difference between the Jew and the Gentile. Some will go so far as to say that salvation for the Jews is different. It is a salvation that doesn't actually require faith in Christ. They will be saved, in a sense, just because they are Jews. But that's not what Paul is saying here. Salvation comes both to Jews and Gentiles only through the cross work of Christ. It's only through Calvary that we can know peace with the Lord Jesus Christ and with God's. And so therefore, as God's people, we should seek the salvation of both. We should seek to preach Christ to both. It's the same gospel of peace that needs proclaiming to both Jew and Gentile. Both need to hear this glorious gospel of the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And my time's almost gone. There's one final thing I want us to notice this morning, and that is that this final direction that we have peace with man. We've seen then that we have peace with God, we have peace with ourselves, peace with angels, 
peace between Jew and Gentile, but we also have peace with man. This world is full of bloodshed, isn't it, and animosity and warfare. There's wars throughout the world. Hatred just abounds, doesn't it? But the man who finds Christ and finds this, this peace also then seeks peace. Self-interest begins to fade away. No longer do you want to stand for your own rights and want to fight for your own rights and fight your own corner. That all comes to an end when you find Christ as your peace. And so the believer now seeks the peace of others. Yes, the believer will find affliction and tribulation in the world. Christ tells us that, doesn't he, in John 16. You're not going to find peace in this world. But the believer now seeks to live peacefully and seeks to live peaceably. He seeks the peace of the church. He, he seeks the peace of the nation that he lives in. He seeks the peace of his family. He seeks to promote peace wherever he can. Paul commands us, doesn't he? If it be possible, he says, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Romans 12, verse 18. Christ commands us, doesn't he? Have peace with one another. We're not to sow discord and dissension or to quarrel and harbour animosity in our hearts. Rather, remember what the psalmist says in Psalm 34, we're to seek peace and pursue it. Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers. And so just as I close this morning, let me ask you, do you seek to follow peace with all men? Do you live in peace? You know, on a very practical level, are you at peace with everyone in your family? Are you at peace with everybody here in the church? Perhaps even this morning there's someone here that you can't even really talk to because you don't have peace. Perhaps you harbour some animosity or hostility against someone. You don't like their character. You don't like what they said to you last week. And you harbour this, this bitterness in your heart. But we're to have peace. Friends, we need to be reconciled. You need to be reconciled to your brother and sister in Christ. Let me implore you, even before you go home tonight, go to them and seek peace. Remember what it says in Proverbs, a brother offended is harder to be won than a strong city. We're told that peace is pleasant. You see, when you don't have peace, it, it, it gnaws away at you and it eats you, doesn't it, in your heart. Remember what the psalmist said, Psalm 133, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Well, may the Lord, Jehovah Shalom, help us then to have fellowship and as God's people to seek this unity and this harmony. May we could be those who are continually praising God for Christ, who is our peace.